Today, we delve into the realm of hepatitis B, a well-known global concern. As early as the 5th century BC, Hippocrates described an illness characterized by acute onset jaundice that spread among the population, referred to as epidemic jaundice. This epidemic jaundice was probably caused by one of the viral hepatitides, which has persisted throughout history, impacting humanity and transcending through time. However, it was not until the 20th century that significant breakthroughs occurred. In 1960, Dr. Barrick Bloomberg made a groundbreaking discovery by identifying an antigen in the blood of an Australian individual of Aboriginal descent. This antigen, initially known as the Australia antigen, is now recognized as the hepatitis B surface antigen. Dr. Bloomberg's remarkable finding provided a crucial marker for the diagnosis and the understanding of hepatitis B. Beyond the identification of the hepatitis B surface antigen, he and his team developed in 1969 the world's first vaccine against hepatitis B, paving the way for widespread immunization on a global scale. Today, our patient has hepatitis B, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled HBV, the most viral podcast, and is all about hepatitis B. Time for a minute physiology. Chronic hepatitis B, resulting from the hepatitis B virus, or HBV, affects nearly 400 million people across the world. While many of those will not suffer from major complications, up to 40% of the individuals affected will experience serious adverse events, such as hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC, or cirrhosis. Inversely, a majority of HCCs are caused by HBV. The distribution of HBV is variable across the world and is endemic in certain areas, such as China, Southeast Asia, and Africa. HBV is a DNA virus that is part of the hepatinaviridae family. HBV is a hepatotropic virus and therefore replicates with hepatocytes. Its viral replication is error-prone, allowing for mutations that promote immune evasion, drug resistance, and development of cancer cells. As well, the viral genome can incorporate into the host genome, further increasing the risk of progression to HCC and remains with the patient lifelong. The DNA virus has 10 known major genotypes labeled from A to J that have various geographic distributions. The main genotype in North America is genotype A. However, there are many more genotypes that can be found in Canada and the United States, as reflected by our diverse populations. HPV infection can occur in a variety of ways, including perinatal transmission and percutaneous and mucous membrane exposure. This includes healthcare or IV drug use associated needle stick exposure, sexual exposure, tattoo work, or very rarely secondary to medical procedures such as dental work, vaccination as a consequence of needle reuse, hemodialysis, or blood transfusions, particularly in countries with less stringent screening protocols. As you might infer, risk factors for HPV infection include having family members with HPV, IV drug use, 
at-risk sexual activity, as well as tattoo, piercing, and blood transfusion history, or medical or dental care outside of North America. The natural history of HPV infection is a complex one. Acute infection is generally asymptomatic or clinically mild and nonspecific. HPV infection is most often cleared when it affects adults with functioning immune systems. Vertical transmission, however, usually results in a chronic HPV infection. Children who get infected through horizontal transmission most commonly clear the infection. However, up to 30% end up developing chronic HPV infection. With immunologic maturity comes increasing severity of symptoms explaining why children are relatively asymptomatic with acute infection versus the severe illness we often see in adults. Infection stages vary based on the presence of specific antibodies and antigens. These stages have clinical relevance as they are part of the decision-making process with regards to screening for complications and treatment. We can think of chronic HPV infection as being in one of five possible stages. Phase 1, the HPE antigen-positive chronic infection. This is a phase that is referred to as a stage of immune tolerance. In this phase, there is active viral replication, as demonstrated by positive E antigen, surface antigen, and elevated viral loads in the blood. This infection state is generally not associated with significant inflammation or liver damage, and is therefore associated with normal aminotransferase levels. There is minimal liver fibrosis. Phase 2, HPE antigen-positive chronic hepatitis. This phase used to be referred to as immune active. You can think of it as immune intolerant. Here, there is ongoing liver damage and inflammation, as illustrated by elevated aminotransferase levels, as well as fibrosis on biopsy or non-invasive testing. HPV DNA levels are elevated, but less elevated than phase one levels. This phase can typically last between five to 25 years. Patients at this phase can go on to develop liver cirrhosis or convert to an HPE antigen negative phase. Predictors of seroconversion include young age, high ALT, low viral DNA, and absence of cirrhosis. Phase 3, HPE antigen negative chronic infection. This phase used to be referred to as inactive carrier. Here, there is no ongoing liver damage, aminotransferase levels are generally normal, and there is no evidence of significant liver fibrosis. Viral DNA is detectable, but often low, below 2,000 international units per milliliter. Phase 4, HPE antigen-negative chronic hepatitis. Here, the virus has established ways to escape immune control by mutating to no longer produce E antigen anymore. This is generally seen in older patients. ALT levels are fluctuating and viral load is elevated, but rarely to the level seen in phase two, the immune active phase. This phase is often associated with more fibrosis and thus poorer long-term outcomes. Because of their worse prognosis, initiation of therapy is at viral loads tenfold less than for HPE antigen positive patients. Lastly, phase five, HP surface antigen negative or occult hepatitis B. 
All the previous phases had detectable surface antigen, but this one does not. Viral DNA can be detected in low amounts. This is a phase of so-called immune clearance or control of the virus and has good prognostic value. Note that despite this, patients are still contagious if they have detectable viral DNA. All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. When you suspect a potential HPV infection, it is quite important to obtain a careful history. Clinical manifestations of an acute infection are usually vague and nonspecific. Most cases of acute hepatitis are asymptomatic or present with classical viral prodromes with fatigue, weakness, anorexia, and constitutional symptoms. A small proportion of patients will have jaundice. Arthralgias may also be present. Your history should include screening for risk factors, such as place of birth, family history, occupational history, sexual history, and history of drug use, including motive administration. You should screen for at-risk behaviors or events, such as history of tattoos, piercing, or history of medical procedures or dental interventions. Medical exposure and hospitalization history is important particularly with respect to timing and location. Indeed, a blood transfusion in Canada in the 1980s constitutes a risk factor for the transmission of bloodborne agents, whereas a blood transfusion in Canada in recent years carries a much lower risk. Nowadays, a blood donation carries a 1 in 1.7 million chance of transmission of HPV. Your physical exam will largely focus on identifying any evidence of chronic liver disease. This includes examining the patient's skin, sclera, and mucous membranes for the presence of jaundice, assessing the skin for any rashes or lesions which may indicate coagulation abnormalities associated with liver disease, examining the patient's mental status, coordination, and assessing for presence of asterixis, which are signs of hepatic encephalopathy. Lastly, palpating the abdomen and looking for evidence of hepatomegaly or splenomegaly, as well as assessing for the evidence of ascites. On to our workup. Initial workup for a suspected HPV infection includes laboratory tests aimed at three things. First, establishing the diagnosis and level of activity of the infection. Second, establishing the presence of other infections commonly associated with HPV, and third, determining the existence of any associated complications, for instance, fibrosis, cirrhosis, or HCC. As such, these are the following tests you want to order. Order hepatitis B surface antigen to assess presence of current infection, surface antibody to assess for immunity, core antibody to confirm natural infection, and if viral infection is confirmed, an E antigen. Screen for co-infections, including HIV and hepatitis C. If HPV is confirmed, co-infection with hepatitis D is also common, and therefore hepatitis D serology should be ordered. Obtain laboratory work aimed at assessing liver function and damage with liver enzymes, for instance, AST and ALT, bilirubin, CBC to assess for platelet count, coagulation profile, including an INR, albumin, and glucose levels. Obtain an abdominal ultrasound to look for any evidence of cirrhosis, portal hypertension, ascites, or HCC. 
Now, let us quickly talk about how to interpret hepatitis B antigens and antibodies. A negative core antibody, surface antibody, and antigen suggests that the patient is not infected and non-immune. Isolated positive surface antibody implies immunity, which may be natural immunity or secondary to vaccination. Core antibody helps distinguish between the two, as it is only positive if there has been natural infection. Isolated positive core antibody is a bit more complicated. It may mean a resolved infection, a past infection, or a false positive. If your patient is immunocompromised, get a viral DNA test. Now, positive surface antigen suggests an ongoing infection. From then on, you can look at e-antigen, liver enzymes, or non-invasive markers of fibrosis to determine which phase of infection you are in from phase 1 to phase 4. Note that surface antigen takes about 4 to 6 weeks to develop, so it may be difficult to detect an acute infection if the test is done too early. Once you've established the diagnosis and how active the infection is, we'll then need to talk about follow-up. All patients with chronic hepatitis B should be followed with liver enzymes and viral DNA at least every six months. Fibrosis assessment should be performed as well, particularly if there is persistent transaminitis. Abdominal ultrasound to screen for HCC should also be routinely performed ideally every six months in select patients, including Asian men over 40 years old, Asian women over 50 years old, African patients over 20 years old, all cirrhotic patients, patients with a family history of HCC as of 40 years old, and patients with HIV co-infection as of 40 years old. On to our treatment. Not every patient with HBV needs treatment. Treatment goals are the prevention of cirrhosis and HCC. Thus, only patients at higher risk of developing these complications or who already have established liver fibrosis are considered for treatment. More broadly, treatment initiation will depend on a number of factors such as circulating viral DNA and the presence of ongoing liver injury as assessed by liver transaminitis and liver fibrosis. In patients without fibrosis, initiation of treatment will usually involve a discussion between the patient and their physician. Patients with cirrhosis should always be treated indefinitely, irrespective of viral load or ALT levels. Patients with low DNA levels, less than 2,000 international units per milliliter, are generally not treated if they have a normal ALT and are closely followed. Those with persistent ALT elevation but low DNA levels should have other liver diseases excluded, such as fatty liver or hepatitis C. Patients with elevated DNA levels, or greater than 2,000 international units per milliliter, and normal ALT should be assessed for evidence of fibrosis. If there is significant fibrosis, they should be treated. If ALT levels are persistently elevated over a six-month period, Treatment can be offered, particularly if there is evidence of fibrosis. Special populations who should be treated include patients who are immunosuppressed or who are about to be. These patients should receive prophylaxis regardless of evidence of liver damage or HBV DNA. Patients with coexisting HCC or coexisting HIV. Pregnant women should be offered treatment if their viral loads are above 200,000 international units per milliliter 
at 24 to 32 weeks onwards to prevent vertical transmission to the child. And lastly, patients with acute liver failure. Nucleotide or nucleoside analogs, or NAs, are generally first line of treatment. In Tacavir and Tenofovir, both TDF and TAF are very potent agents and are associated with lower rates of breakthrough viremia and mutation. Lamivudine and telbividine are less potent and have lower barriers to resistance. Telbividine is not available in Canada due to lack of reimbursement, but is commonly used in Asian countries. Adefavir has a higher barrier to resistance, however, is known to have a much slower time to suppression. NAs are the preferred option in decompensated liver disease, liver transplant recipients, acute infection, or in patients who need to undergo treatment in context of initiation of immunosuppressive therapy. Tenofovir is contraindicated in patients with renal or bone disease. In such patients, TAF, tenofovir, or entecavir should be offered. NAs, especially entecavir and tenofovir, are long-term treatment modalities and should be continued indefinitely. Interferon, standard or pegylated, is another treatment option that has historically been used to restore long-term immunologic control. An important advantage is a clear-cut duration of treatment. However, treatment response is highly variable, and there are significant side effects to expect, such as flu-like symptoms, generalized malaise, depression, emotional lability, as well as bone marrow suppression and thyroid dysfunction, or hepatitis flares. Due to this very significant side effect profile, it has now largely fallen out of favor in clinical practice. Patients on long-term NA therapy can sometimes be considered for safe discontinuation of therapy. Patients with cirrhosis or advanced liver fibrosis must continue treatment indefinitely. Patient with no or minimal fibrosis, chronically suppressed DNA levels, and a negative E antigen can be considered for discontinuation. In such patients, quantitative surface antigen is measured, and when inferior to 100 international units per milliliter, treatment withdrawal can be considered with careful regular monitoring. Time for a Medicine Minute. In March 2023, the CDC released an updated version of their HPV screening and testing guidelines. As per their recommendations, all adults should be screened for HPV triple testing, that is, by obtaining hepatitis B surface antigen, hepatitis B surface antibody, and hepatitis B core antibody at least once in their life. Any individual who requests HPV testing should be tested, regardless of stated exposure or risk factor. All pregnant women should be screened with HB surface antigen regardless of prior vaccination or testing. At-risk individuals should be routinely tested as long as the exposure to the risk factor in question persists. Risk factors include, but are not limited to, history of sexually transmitted infections, multiple partners, men who have sex with men, or sexual contact with people known for hepatitis B infection, history of HIV or hepatitis C, history of incarceration or current incarceration, history of intravenous drug use or needle sharing with people who have hepatitis B, history of close contact within the household with people with known hepatitis B, history of dialysis, including hemodialysis, peritoneal dialysis, in-center dialysis or home dialysis, patients with elevated liver enzymes, birth to hepatitis B surface antigen positive parents, birth in regions with hepatitis B prevalence of 2% or above, 
and no vaccination history and born to parents born in endemic regions. Recommendations have thus been significantly expanded from prior, with a paradigm shift from at-risk testing to universal screening. Universal screening was deemed to be simpler, more efficient, and more cost-effective to incorporate into practice. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled HBV, The Most Viral Podcast. This episode was written by Drs. Amin Zuglami and Ikram Abu Muhammad, internal medicine residents, and reviewed by Dr. Philip Wong, hepatologist, and Dr. Sanibel Zabat, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Alison Lai. The Internetwork series was created and executively produced by Alison Lai, Leia Karinopoulos, and Zara Morali. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you again soon.